Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trupiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday, most of the time. Well, it's Tuesday, and here I am. I used to say at 10 a.m., but recently I feel like it's probably better if I post around like 5 p.m., so that's where I'm trying to get into. Um, it's worked out so far, so... If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you already know how much I love you guys. I love interacting with you. I appreciate that you're a part of this family that I've built around me. And just thank you so much for all your love and support. If you're someone that watches my channel a lot, you know that it has been months since I've posted a new video. That's pretty odd for me because I usually do a pretty good job of making sure that I get a new video out every single week. If I go an extra week every once in a while, it's usually because of something pretty serious. So the fact that I haven't been here in like two to three months is pretty huge. The next little bit is for the people that watch my channel and have been for a while. If you're a newcomer, you're more than welcome to join, but if you don't want to listen to me ramble about my life, I always have chapters in my videos and you can always skip to the next chapter and not listen to me talk about my life. No harm, no foul, so feel free to do that. This is also the first time that I am talking to absolutely anybody about this. I didn't post it on my personal pages. I haven't talked to more than one or two people in person about this. And I thought that making this video and talking about it on here would be the perfect way to kind of get it all out in the open once and for all, not have to explain it individually to people that I know, and maybe be a little cathartic for me because God knows I need it. For a long time, I posted updates to you guys about my IVF journey. I spent about three or four years doing medicated fertility treatments. I'm talking IVF, IUI, FET, surgeries, medications, everything you could possibly do for fertility treatments, I did. Before that, I did cycle tracking and timed intercourse. I literally did every single thing that I could. All in all, I would say I spent about eight years actively trying to get pregnant and have a baby. Well, on July 31st, I did a frozen embryo transfer and it worked. When we went to first confirm the pregnancy, they said that I was pregnant with twins. They said that I had fraternal twins, both embryos had transferred and attached, and both embryos would grow into a baby. We got our first dose of tragedy a week or two later when we learned that one of the eggs was not developing. They didn't call it a miscarriage or a death. They just said that the egg didn't grow, but it did implant. That didn't like really compute with me. Like it attached. The egg is right there. I can see it. Why is there nothing happening? How could it just not be? But it wasn't showing any signs of life. The other embryo, however, had split and become identical twins. So we still had twins, but now just different. We had identical instead of fraternal twins. I was considered a high-risk pregnancy right off the rip. After all the treatments that it had taken to get me pregnant in the first place, I already had a lot wrong with me. They just wanted to keep an extra eye on me. So I was getting sonograms every single week. That's a lot more than like a normal pregnancy where you usually get only about two or three sonograms the entire time you're pregnant. Figure if you're pregnant for 40 weeks, I would have had 40 sonograms. That's a lot of sonograms. I had to take medication for a long time. I was on progesterone and estrogen and those meds had to continue until week 10. I know I've talked to you guys about the progesterone needles. They were freaking huge and painful, and that continued on for 10 weeks. So, but whatever, you know, I got pregnant. It's all worth it. I'm going on my merry way, doing my meds, getting regular sonograms, watching the twins grow every single week. Their heart rates increased every week, and at the nine-week mark, we were up there. Like, they were about 180 and 190. Around the six-week mark, I started to bleed. We called the doctor, and it was like this big thing. But when I went to the doctor, we were able to see that not only were the twins in there, plus the embryo that didn't grow but did attach, now there was a hematoma and a fibroid in my uterus, which was causing the bleeding. Not dangerous for me, not dangerous for babies, but would cause bleeding and just yet another thing to add to the high-risk pregnancy. There was a whole lot that went down during the interim, 
But the general consensus was that I was on bed rest. If I did something as small as like clean my kitchen, wipe my counters down, I would bleed for days and days. Being on bed rest was fine with me too, because I had such low energy, lower energy than I've ever had in my entire life. I'm not even talking like, oh, I'm just tired, I'm always tired. No, I'm talking about the amount of energy it takes to sit up is exhausting. But it's whatever. I've always heard that you're really tired in the beginning of pregnancy, so it is what it is. You know, just grin and bear it and keep on going. About a week ago, I was hanging out in my room. It's about 3 a.m. because now I'm spending 24-7 in bed. Obviously, my sleep schedule is way off, so 3 a.m. is totally a normal time to pretty much be starting my day off. And I started having heavy bleeding. Like, the kind of bleeding where you know something is wrong. So I went to the hospital. At the hospital, they said everything was fine. They showed no signs of worry, no signs of concern, nothing. I personally was super concerned because the baby's heart rates had gone down. They were previously around 190, and now they were just at like 160, 140. But the doctor said that that was normal at 11 weeks. So, okay, just keep on keeping on and stay in bed. The next week was rough and the bleeding continued, but the doctor said I was fine, so <laughs> I'm fine. As long as I stay in bed, I'm Gucci, baby. The 12-week appointment finally comes up, and to skip over everything that happened, we found out that the babies no longer had a heartbeat. They had me into emergency surgery in less than 24 hours, and that was that. It's been a very painful and hard recovery. I'm still dealing with it. But I'm doing my best to get back to my life and get back to the normal that I used to have and kind of let go of the dream of what I thought was going to be. I have decided that at this point, I'm done. I went through so long, so many years of trying, doing everything, and it was all for nothing. So at this point, I will just be fine spending the rest of my life traveling with my husband. I really don't need a kid. I can just sleep in every day, whatever. So aside from that sadness, I did finally finish my kitchen. I'll post pictures of where it's at. It's not 100%, but I would say it's about 90% done. So if you've been following me for a while, you know that I have been having this work done for so long and it is finally done. I also made a Reddit thread a few weeks ago that got pretty popular, and a pretty big YouTuber picked it up and made a video with the Reddit post read on the video. If you're a longtime viewer, you know that my best friend was murdered in 2015, and nobody has ever been arrested for it. So I'm trying to put together money to get a PI to try to get some closure on this case once and for all. The creator that made the video, Maverick Files, was amazing, and he actually donated $2,000 of his own money. And he's also planning to do a second full video dedicated to Billy's case, and it's supposed to come out in late November, early December. If you want to watch the video, I'll link it in the description of this video, or you can go to my playlist featuring Dana Trupiano. And yeah, it's just been a lot of like... I don't know, laying down, laying in bed, feeling sorry for myself, and that officially ends now. So I'm back to making videos. I hope you guys enjoy. So our episode today is going to be on Meyer Lansky, an American organized crime figure and one of the most iconic mobsters there ever was. He was a founder, an innovator, and a personal close friend to a lot of the guys that I've already covered on this channel. So let's get into it, shall we? Lansky, or as he was named when he was born, Meyer Sachaujinsky, was popularly known amongst the mobsters eventually as the mob's accountant, and also was known as the brain, the mogul of the mob, and the chairman of the board. On a hot day sometime in July of 1902, in the quaint town of Grodno, a child named 
Meyer Sochowczynski was born. He entered into the world into a Polish Jewish family who were victims of a lot of anti-Semitic activities, a heritage which would significantly shape his journey through the rest of his life. Meyer was given his name after a famous rabbi. In 1911, when Meyer was only nine years old, the Suchowczynski family embarked on a journey that would forever alter the course of their lives. Fleeing the oppressive environment of anti-Semitism and pogroms, they sought solace and opportunity on the shores of the United States. They followed the path that, at this point, I'm pretty convinced all families immigrating into America followed. His father, Max, headed to America in 1909 and set up a life on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Two years later, on April 8, 1911, Meyer, his brother Jacob, and his mother Yetta all headed to America and reunited with the father, having a life already in place for them. When they arrived on American shores, Meyer's family underwent a transformation, not just in their name, as they adopted a more Americanized last name, Lansky, which had been given to his father on Ellis Island, but also in their aspirations and what they wanted to do. The Lansky family settled in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which was at the time a melting pot of cultures and opportunities. And that is something that you don't really experience too much in other countries. A lot of other countries are very segregated. There's not a bunch of different cultures all put into one little neighborhood. And that's a really cool thing about America is that you get a chance to interact and live right near people of other cultures. Their transition to the United States was not without its own complications. It's said that during the immigration process, the family had a curious dilemma. Meyer's parents, overwhelmed with the whirlwind of change, reportedly could not recall their son's exact birth date. Faced with this perplexing situation, because who doesn't know exactly what day their kid is born, an arbitrary decision was made. July 4th would become Meyer's official birthday for his immigration records. So now, as per any official documents he has, July 4th is his birthday. It might be the day he was born, but... Probably not. They just kind of pulled that date out of a hat. But now, Meyer Lansky's new birthday was July 4th, 1902. Lansky would go on to become a naturalized citizen in the late 1920s. In the inner city, violence was unfortunately a constant reality. Lansky's childhood was marred by the horrors of physical altercations and street fights, and there was just always something violent going on in the neighborhood around him. The streets... For a child, they're supposed to be a playground for laughter and camaraderie, and instead it turned out that they were a testing ground for survival. Amidst the adversity, Lansky exhibited a remarkable self-assured demeanor. His unyielding spirit seemed to defy the challenges that surrounded him. He just would not stop, and he's this puny little kid, and he's always getting beat up, he's always getting picked on, and he's still standing up for himself. He's still doing well. It's amidst these trials that Lansky honed his street smarts. He learned the art of negotiation, self-defense, and cunning observation. Skills that would serve him well in the tumultuous years to come. Now, Lansky was brilliant. Like, he tried to exude this, like, tough exterior. He's a little puny thing. But he's trying to act tough because he has to act tough or he's going to get beat up every single day. But this boy is a genius. He's renowned for his prestigious mathematical abilities. And he stood out as a very strategic thinker even in his younger years. Like, he was recognized for his brilliance even when he was younger. As amazing as it is to have a talent and one that could be as useful as, like, let's say math, and trust me, I would give anything to have that talent because I am trash at math. But imagine what it has to be like to be poor little Meyer. Growing up on the streets where gangs and violence are regular, people of all ages, even his own age, are running the streets, in the gangs, doing violent crimes. He's growing up around a heavy Italian and Irish population, and they each have their own subset of little gangs and mafias. And this poor little nerdy boy that loves numbers and charts and business, he is walking it completely on his own. 
Like, you gotta feel for the poor little guy. Eventually, when he got a little older, he would hook up with Bugsy Siegel and Lucky Luciano, but as a kid, this kid's just completely by himself, and it's so sad. I think about him, and I just want to hug him. Despite his intellectual promise, Lansky cut his formal education short himself. After graduating from the 8th grade, the family was having a lot of severe financial struggles. He had a lot of pressure, he needed to make sure his family would remain in their house, and that forced him to leave the classroom behind and enter the world of labor. He quickly mastered the intricacies of metalworking, and later, he transitioned into becoming an auto mechanic. Lansky's father, seeking to provide for his family, joined the ranks of the city's bustling garment district as a garment presser. The garment industry was one of the pivotal driving forces behind the city's economy, and it was within that industry that Lansky's father sought to secure his family's financial future. As the family adjusted to their new life, young Meyer Lansky found himself stepping out into the world of education once more. Once the father was able to get a job in the garment district and things were a little more stable financially, Meyer Lansky decided that he was going to go back to school and try to get more of a formal education. The family then moved to Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, there is a lot more space for people. There's a lot more housing. It's a lot more affordable than anywhere in Manhattan, even in the lowest parts of Manhattan. And now that his father had returned to the workforce, Lansky once again returned to school. While his father was laboring in the garment district, Lansky immersed himself in his studies, and he was determined to make the most of the education that he was able to get, because now he appreciated it. He had been thrown out into the real world. He had been in ninth grade working full-time supporting a family. Now he goes back to school and he's like, all right, this isn't so hard, you know? When he turned 17 years old, he made the final decision to leave formal education behind once again and go into the workforce. He started working as an auto mechanic again, and at the time he was making 10 cents an hour and working about 50 hours a week. He said that circumstances prevented him from pursuing his dream of studying engineering. So who knows, maybe his dad lost his job again. Who knows what circumstances led to him having to go back to work and drop out of school again, but he did not graduate high school. As much as he was a numbers guy and he loved being in an office and he loved doing the books, he picked up the tools and started working with his hands. And his work as an auto mechanic was just temporary. Like, it was never meant to be a career. It made him money for now. But honestly, later on, it would probably come in handy when he started an auto theft and auto resale ring. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. His father's career in the garment district actually had a pretty profound impact on Meyer's life. Later in his life, his grandson would say that one of the things that he most distinctly remembers about his grandfather and their interactions together was his counsel on clothing. He said that his grandfather provided a full-blown education on clothing. The proper materials to wear, the stitching that made clothes good or not good. This education that Meyer received through his father at the garment district was later passed on to his grandson. While he was going to school, Meyer also began playing craps with the boys in the area, and that is pretty much where the story of his life starts. While playing craps, he gets introduced to infamous Arnold Rothstein, and Meyer started a straight-out business out of this little pastime, going from playing craps on the streets to a full-blown gambling business. When people would ask Lansky where he came from, he would often respond to people and tell them that he was from Poland, which is a little weird. Nobody really knows why he did that. Like, there's nothing wrong with saying he was from where he was from, but I think it was just Poland was an easier answer. By the time he was only 16 years old, Lansky had already attracted the attention of law enforcement. He was accused of felonious assault and disorderly conduct. These charges never went anywhere, though, and this would pretty much be foreshadowing of what was to come. Throughout his life, Lansky would only ever be put in jail one time. 
He did two months in jail in 1953 on a gambling conviction in Saratoga Springs, New York. And other than that, all of the other accusations that were ever levied against him went nowhere, and he was a free man his entire life. Now, in this urban jungle where Lansky is just kind of on his own and flailing through life, he would end up making a comrade and sailing through life together with him. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. When they were younger, Lansky and Bugsy were friends, and they ended up partnering in the bootlegging business and became lifelong companions. The two young men formed a friendship that would eventually play a pivotal role in the criminal landscape of America. They originally met through mutual acquaintances, and Siegel, much like Lansky, was drawn to the allure of the streets. The two found common ground in their pursuit of opportunities beyond the conventional, let's just say. As the early 20th century gave way to the roaring 1920s, the underbelly of American society was undergoing a transformation. Prohibition, the nationwide ban on the sale and consumption of alcohol, created a thriving underworld that reveled in illegal activities. In a tumultuous era, Meyer Lansky and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel emerged as central figures, shaping the destiny of one of the most notorious criminal enterprises of all time, the Bugs and Meyer mob. If you watch my channel a lot, say it with me, Prohibition created the mafia. And Prohibition created these guys as criminals. They had a shared ambition, a keen understanding of the opportunities that Prohibition presented, and they seized that chance and they ran with it. With their distinctive skill sets and personalities, Lansky and Siegel found themselves uniquely positioned to make their mark on the criminal landscape. Now, Lansky and Siegel, they each have their own distinctive skill set. They each have their own personality. They each have things that they are strong in, and they are complete opposites. So in ways that Lansky is weak, Siegel is strong, and vice versa. So they make a really good team. Lansky has all the math abilities. He has the strategic mind. He's a thinker. He will be two steps ahead of the next person. And he brought a calculated approach to their operations. He is a perfectionist. The numbers had to be exactly right, just like the clothes he wore, the food he ate. Every little detail in Lansky's life has to be perfect. It's well thought out. It's meticulously checked and rechecked for perfection. Everything has to be perfect. Siegel is not known for that. He's known for the audacity and charisma of his personality. And that had a huge part in their ability to expand because charisma, that is a very people person. So while Siegel was able to get the buyers and the sellers and get all the people work done, Lansky was able to get all the numbers and the actual business and the planning and everything behind the scenes done. The different skill sets between the two really helped them grow their business reputation. The Bugs and Meyer mob operated in a world that is marked by violence. There's a lot of competition and everybody out there is trying to be the biggest bootlegger. There's this huge open black market for alcohol because once you make something illegal, everybody wants it. And all of the criminal organizations are vying for control over this lucrative trade. The Bugs and Meyer mob built a reputation for violence, and it earned them a fearsome image that let people know not to mess with them, or else. Not only was the Bugs and Meyer mob involved in bootlegging, but they would also end up being hired out individually for murder-for-hire plots. The mob's activities extended beyond bootlegging and ended up going into gambling, extortion, and prostitution. Lansky's ability to strategize and Siegel's ability to rally the troops helped maintain a semblance of cohesion, even throughout like internal struggles with the gang. And whenever there was issues, there was always these two who were the polar opposites of each other, but were able to work together to fix pretty much any issue that could come up. Despite their violent reputation, they also cultivated relationships with politicians, law enforcement officials, and other influential figures. And we all know how they did that. They used coercion, they used payoffs, and they also cooperated a lot 
to ensure that their interests were protected with these political figures. Interestingly enough, I have never done a video about Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. I talk pretty heavily about him and everything that he's done in my video about Virginia Woolf, but I have never dedicated an entire video to him. Because of that, let's go through him and his background a little bit because I don't really plan on giving him his own video. Benjamin Siegel was born on February 28th, 1906 in Brooklyn, New York. He was born the second of five children to a poor Ashkenazi Jewish family who moved to the United States from the Galatia region of what was once Austria-Hungary. His parents, Jenny and Max, were always working, but they were always working for very, very low wages, and they always had a very hard time financially. Siegel dropped out of school as a teenager, and he joined a gang on Lafayette Street in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Until he met Mo Sedway, he mostly committed thefts. He was doing petty crimes. He wasn't doing anything serious, but he was trying to pay the bills. He and Sedway formed a protection ring in which he threatened to burn pushcart owners' carts unless they paid him a dollar. So pretty much extortion. He quickly accumulated an extensive criminal record, and that included armed robbery, rape, and murder. Now, by the time Lansky became friends with Siegel, he had already had a run-in with Lucky Luciano. Lansky saw a need for his Brooklyn neighborhood's Jewish youth to organize in the same way that the Italians and the Irish did, because he had a run-in with Luciano, he was friendly with Luciano, we'll go into how they became friends, but he's friendly with Luciano, and he's like, wait, Luciano and his gang are organizing. And then the Irish guys, they're organizing. Why is there no Jewish gang? We need to do this. We need to organize together to protect each other. Bugsy Siegel was the first person that he recruited into this gang that he made. He got into bootlegging in several major East Coast cities. He also operated as a hitman for the mob, and Lansky subcontracted to other families. So it was all different facets, the the West Side Boys, the Gambinos, the every different gang, he didn't care. He would just subcontract and do their work for them. Lansky and Siegel created the Bugs and Meyer mob, which handled hits for several bootleg gangs in New York. And they also worked in New Jersey as well. And they worked for about a decade before Murder, Inc. was formed, which pretty much did the same thing that these guys were doing. The group remained busy by robbing rival groups' booze shipments, and they're infamous for having killed and expelled a number of rival gang leaders. Abner Longies Wilman, Louis Lepke Buchalter, and Lansky's brother Jake were among the members of the Bugs and Meyer mob. Joseph Doc Stature talked to a biographer later on. His name was Uri Dan, and he told him that Bugsy never hesitated when danger threatened. He said that Bugsy was already shooting while we were debating the best course of action. There was no one better when it came to action. Never have I met a man with more courage. So the people in the gang thought really highly of both Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, which is pretty important for you to think highly of the leader of your gang. Bugsy Siegel was a huge part of the creation of the Las Vegas Strip. Siegel, along with his childhood buddy, Meyer Lansky, rounded up the funding from fellow gangsters and also went to legit friends as well. There was a lot of mayors, a lot of congressmen, a lot of legit people were putting money into this because Bugsy is such a great salesman. He sold them on a dream of a desert-turned-metropolis of just gambling and debauchery, and this was going to be the greatest place ever created. The two wielded considerable power inside the Jewish mafia, and they also had a lot of power in the Italian-American mafia. The two of them were also pretty high up in the Italian-Jewish National Crime Syndicate. Siegel turned out to be one of the first front-page celebrity gangsters, described as gorgeous and personable. He's just such a cutie. Siegel was friends as a child with Al Capone, and when Capone had a warrant out for his arrest one time, Siegel let Capone stay at his aunt's house. So, like, that's how close they were. Capone would make Siegel one of his primary calls if he really needed something and he needed to stay off the grid. So they were really close. 
He started using opium when he was really young, and he was an active drug dealer. He started making a lot of money when he hit like 21 years old, and he showed it off. He purchased a Tudor house in Scarsdale, New York, and he had a permanent apartment at the Waldorf Astoria. He participated in New York City's nightlife, and he went out in bright clothes, and he had all the jewelry and the pinky ring, and he was just... He was gaudy, and picture like John Gotti, that was him. He was the Gotti of his era. Lansky and Siegel, who were there on behalf of the Bugs and Meyer mob, they weren't even like there as Luciano's friends or, you know, Capone's friends. They were there on behalf of the Bugs and Meyer mob, which had turned into a really powerful gang. And they together attended the Atlantic City Conference from May 13th to May 16th, 1929. The conference was held at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and at the Atlantic City Conference, Luciano and Johnny Torrio, the former head of the Chicago Southside Gang, hosted this conference-slash-summit. The topics of discussion were pretty much the future of organized crime and the makeup of the mafia. This is where we're going to start to see the very beginning of organized crime take place. I talked a lot in my Anastasia and my Luciano video about the creation of the mafia and the steps that it took to get there. The Castella Marisi War, Maranzano putting the five families in place. I talked about all that, but the Atlantic City Conference, this is the very first step that we see in that long drawn out process to get the mafia to where we know it today with the five families and everything structured the way it is. During Prohibition, Siegel obviously turned to bootlegging. Any gangster around that time is a bootlegger during Prohibition. We know this. When Prohibition was repealed by the 21st Amendment in 1933, he turned to gambling and built an empire on illegal gambling. Together with Albert Anastasia and Louis Lepke Buchalter, Bugsy assisted in the creation of Murder, Inc., one of the most notorious hit teams to ever exist. Siegel has 30 personal kills under his belt, and that's not including assists or ones that he farmed out. This is pretty crazy because almost every other Jewish gangster involved in Murder, Inc. ended up in the electric chair. So the fact that he was a founding member and he walked away was a feat of its own. Everyone else was put to death. Buchholter was put to the electric chair March 4th, 1944, and Siegel didn't die until 1947. So it's not even like he died before the feds could get him. He walked away clean from Murder, Inc. He also took part in the murder of Joe Masseria, which is a huge feat because that man was bulletproof. He had escaped a crazy amount of murder attempts, so the team that finally was able to get him, they bragged hard about it. Especially since the murder ended an entire war that had claimed a whole lot of lives. So like, greater good kind of stuff, you know? Harry Greenberg, a friend and a fellow gangster, had turned informant, and Siegel was charged with his murder in 1941. In 1942, he was found not guilty. In Las Vegas, Nevada, Siegel managed and provided funding for several of the first casinos ever built there. I'm talking, when Siegel decided that he wanted to build Las Vegas, it was a desert wasteland. Las Vegas is what it is today because of the efforts of Bugsy Siegel. And yet, unless you're interested in the mafia, you probably have no idea that that's the case. When developer William R. Wilkerson ran out of money, he helped with the Flamingo Hotel. Siegel took charge of that undertaking, and he oversaw the last phases of the construction. The Flamingo premiered on December 26, 1946, during torrential downpour. I'm talking storm of the century. Nobody was going out of their house to go to no casino. As a result of the poor response and a lot of technical issues that were going on during the opening, it ended up getting shuttered. It reopened in March of 1947 as a finished hotel, but by that time, the Mafia was persuaded that Virginia Hill, Siegel's lover, or both of them together, had stolen an estimate of a million dollars from the budget that was made to build the Flamingo. On June 20th, 1947, a sniper shot and killed Siegel through the window while he was at Hill's mansion on Linden Drive. 
It's pretty widely known, or at least widely believed, that it was Lansky himself who put the order out for Siegel to be killed. And that always pissed me off, to be honest. And that's why it took me so long to make a video about Meyer Lansky. Like, okay, yes, I get it. In the Mafia, it is always your best friend that takes you out. That's normal. But this is so OD and like crazy to me that Lansky took out his best friend since he was a kid and it was all over like money. Like what an asshole. It's not even like he went crazy and killed a maid guy or something like that. Like it was over money and he killed his best friend. And that just makes him a douche in my eyes. The chance encounter between two teenagers, Meyer Lansky and Charles Lucky Luciano, would eventually forge a friendship that make a huge mark on the entire creation and the rest of the mafia for all time. Lansky and Luciano met in the streets that they both grew up in. I have an entire video about Luciano, so I'm not really going to go do a whole recap like I just said about Siegel. If you want to know about Luciano, you can go watch that video, or you can watch the video on Anastasia. I talk a lot about him there. So if you're interested in learning more about him, either one of those, they'll both be linked in the description. Go check those out, but I'm not going to do a whole recap on Luciano here. The first encounter between the two of them was when Luciano, this hard little Italian gangster on the block, attempted to extort protection money from Lansky as he walked home from school. This encounter, when you're looking from the outside, it's like, oh shit, Lansky's getting bullied, Luciano's going after him, this is not good. But it actually set the stage for a relationship that would evolve into one of mutual respect, uh, strategic partnership. They were the best of friends until the day one of them died. Like, they were biffles. Luciano is a member of the Mafia, but one of his most trusted advisors is a non-Italian partner. And the friendship between the two of them was a huge reason that the Castello Marisi War happened. So... This friendship means a lot. Lansky, refusing to be bullied, demonstrated the balls of steel that he possessed by standing his ground against Luciano's attempted extortion. This act of defiance not only caught Luciano's attention, but it also earned his respect. He was like, all right, this little, little kid can, can stand up for himself. That's cool. He recognized in this tiny little kid. Now, remember, fully grown, Lansky is five foot four. So as a kid, you gotta figure he's small. But Luciano was able to see Lansky's tenacity and his intelligence through just having a conversation by trying to extort him. Luciano realized that he would be a huge asset and a very good person to bounce ideas off of and just have a partnership with. So he became friends with him when Lansky would not let him extort him. The friendship between Lansky and Luciano is very similar to the one between Lansky and Siegel. Luciano is very similar to Siegel. He has a lot of charisma, he's a natural leader, and he's a people person. Lansky's strengths are more strategic thinking, business acumen, he does a lot of behind the scenes stuff. So whoever he works with that has those kind of attributes, it's going to work well together. Lansky was one of the few people that was able to rein in Luciano's raging temper. And Luciano was the one that was able to go out, shake the hands, form the partnerships. And he's the one setting up the income to come pouring in. And then Lansky's dealing with the income once it comes in. Having Luciano around is also very helpful for Lansky because he's already indoctrinated into the Italian mafia. That is something that would be almost impossible for Lansky and Siegel alone to try to penetrate. They could not do it. This is still during the time that the Italian mafia does not work with anybody that is not Italian under any circumstances whatsoever. The trio's friendship would be a huge driving force in creating the change necessary for the Italian mafia to start working with other ethnicities. But at the time, they do not work with anybody else at all. So Lansky and Siegel have a very rare ability to have some kind of contact with the Italian mafia where no other Jewish gangsters would have that unless they had a person that was already in the mafia, which was rare because people in the mafia didn't talk to people that weren't Italian. So it was just kind of a catch-22. So Luciano, this is a match made in heaven for Lansky and Siegel. 
Lansky made the introduction to Rothstein, and Luciano started working together with Lansky and Siegel under Rothstein. The three of them continued to work under Rothstein until 1928, when Rothstein was assassinated after he was scammed and refused to pay for it. I talk a lot about Rothstein's death in the Albert Anastasia video. Once again, you can go check that out if you're interested. While Lansky introduced Luciano to Rothstein, Luciano was working under Joe Masseria. While Rothstein would work with Luciano, Masseria is what they call a mustache peep. He did not talk to, no less work with people of any other origin than Sicilian. He even went as far as to call Frank Costello a dirty Calabrian on more than one occasion just because he wasn't Sicilian. He was from Italy, but he wasn't from Sicily. So like he would talk to him, but he didn't like him. So the fact that these guys are Jewish, like that is just not happening. Get away from me. I'm not interested. So it's not like Luciano could return the favor. Lansky introduced Luciano to his boss, but Luciano could not introduce Lansky and Siegel to his boss. The Mustache Peets, who are pretty much just like the older generation of gangsters who strongly believed in the ideas of the old Sicilians and only Sicilians. I'm talking like Black Hand era gangsters. And Joe Masseria was one of them. And Luciano wasn't like that. He just wanted to chill. He just wanted to do business with whoever could make him a profit. And he just wasn't down with the old Sicilian ideas. So he launched a war within the war of the Castella Marisi War, where the young Turks fought for the ability to broaden their horizons and be able to do business with other people. And this is against the Mustache Peets, who are the ruling class of the Mafia right now. Again, this is a topic I go really into depth in my Luciano video, so I'm not going to go too far into it. But if you're interested, go check that one out. After the conference in Atlantic City in May of 1929 that he, Lansky, Johnny Torrio, and Frank Costello had organized, Luciano had a vision to create a national crime syndicate in which Italian, Jewish, Irish gangsters, everyone from every ethnicity could just pool their resources and turn organized crime into a lucrative business. The conference in Atlantic City was the first step towards this national crime syndicate and just taking every criminal from every background and just making a business where everybody could make money together. Arnold the Brain Rothstein immediately recognized the opportunity that Prohibition presented. Obviously, this is a chance to make a shit ton of money. And he told Luciano how to operate a bootleg liquor company. With funding from Rothstein, Luciano was able to work together with his friends Vito Genovese, Frank Costello, and obviously Lansky and Siegel, and all together they established their own bootlegging business. He became very well known during Prohibition, becoming known for selling illegal alcohol on Broadway and other like fancy schmancy places. This is a pretty big deal for a bunch of street thugs like the boys from the Five Points gang, the gang that all the Italians hailed from. Luciano was the only one, really, that was able to break into the upper echelons of society, and he was able to do that because he had the help of Rothstein. Among other things, Rothstein taught Luciano how to behave in high society and just kind of served as a mentor from him. He helped him pick out clothes that would help Luciano fit in with the elite of society. He helped him with his manners, figure it was like a quick etiquette school. Luciano quickly rose to position of a top aide of Joe Masseria in the criminal enterprise that day and age's mafia. Unlike Rothstein, Masseria had really bad manners. He didn't have any experience with like books and numbers and business and had no formal education. So Luciano is getting an education from the top of the top on both ends. So he's got like an illegal businessman and an illegal gangster. And he's learning from the both of them at the same time. By the late 1920s, Salvatore Maranzano had arrived from Sicily and he started to run the Castella Marisi clan and turned into Masseria's major adversary. 
The Mustache Peets held a strong commitment to upholding the old world mafia values of honor, tradition, respect, and dignity. These employers rejected non-Italians, and they showed skepticism towards anybody that wasn't Sicilian. Only males with ties to their own Sicilian village were employed by some of the most traditional bosses. As long as there was money to be made, though, Luciano was down. Luciano was happy to work with anybody that could make him money. It didn't matter what ethnic group. It didn't matter where they came from or what they looked like. He just wanted to make money. Luciano immediately started forming friendships with other young gangsters who were born in Italy, but started their criminal lives in America, and all of them, like him, resented how conservative the bosses were. And thus, the Young Turks were born. In order to expand their gang enterprises into criminal empires, Luciano used the skills that he learned from Rothstein. Future mafia bosses like Frank Costello, Vito Genovese, Albert Anastasia, Joe Adonis, Joe Bonanno, Carlo Gambino, Joe Perfacci, Thomas Gagliano, and Thomas Lucchese, eventually they all joined the gang of the Young Turks as the battle dragged on because this was a long war. All of these guys together thought that their bosses were way too conservative and the old world values that they were sticking to were keeping them in poverty, while the Irish and Jewish gangsters were able to prosper because they were able to work with whoever they wanted. Masseria had been having a lot of trouble in the war that was waging with Maranzano. And with this trouble, Luciano saw a chance to change sides. He went to Maranzano, and together they formed a covert agreement where Luciano agreed that he would take out Masseria. And in exchange, he would get all of Masseria's rackets that were left behind. And he would also be the second in command to Maranzano and be the boss of his own family in the five families that Maranzano planned to create. When Masseria learned that Luciano had this little agreement going on, he went to Joe Adonis. And he's like, hey, Adonis, I need you to take out Luciano. Like, screw that guy. We're done with him. Go take him out. He doesn't know, though, that Adonis is a young Turk. They've got their own little gang in the mafia, and Adonis went running right to Luciano. Masseria was murdered on April 15th, 1931, at Nueva Villa Tamaro, a Coney Island eatery in Brooklyn. According to reports, Anastasia, Genovese, Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel burst into the restaurant and killed Masseria as they were playing cards. Luciano had excused himself for the bathroom, so he wasn't there. It's actually pretty widely believed that Lansky himself was a huge driving force behind Luciano's decision to have Masseria taken out and to go with Maranzano. And that was kind of Lansky's role. He was kind of like the fairy on his shoulder, like the angel and the devil. He was just always the one in Luciano's ear, like, oh, this is the decision you should make. This is what you should do. And just constantly trying to guide him. And Luciano listened. Things went south with Maranzano pretty quickly. So Luciano ended up pretty quickly after Masseria died, making the decision to have Maranzano taken out as well. He sent four Jewish gangsters, whose faces Maranzano's employees had never seen, to Maranzano's office. It was pretty easy to find gangsters that Maranzano's employees had never seen because he had Lancy and Siegel, and they were able to find Jewish gangsters that nobody had ever seen. It was really simple. Two of the gangsters disarmed Maranzano's bodyguards while they posed as federal agents. So they like pretended to be arresting them took their guns away, and then the other two of the gangsters went into Maranzano's office and repeatedly stabbed him before shooting him. The only Italian that was there that day was Lucchese, and Lucchese just went so that he could ID him because, I mean, we've seen on multiple occasions people get shot, killed, whatever, because it's the wrong person or they're sitting in the wrong place. They didn't want that to happen. So Lucchese came along, he pointed out to the Jewish gangsters who Maranzano was, and then Maranzano was killed. Now that all the drama with Prohibition having ended and the Casella-Marisi war is finally over, everything is all behind them. 
Now they got to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives. Lansky set up gambling enterprises in Cuba, New Orleans, and Florida in 1936. These casinos were really, really successful, and they were successful because they were built on two innovations. They were built on the basis of Lansky's understanding of mathematical probabilities. He understood the way that the majority of well-liked wagering games worked. He also had the technological know-how to handle them successfully, so he was smart enough to make this all work on his own. In order to protect the business from other criminals and from police enforcement, the Mafia leveraged connections and bribed officials and pretty much did what they do for all of their criminal activity. They paid off the legit guys. And then paying everybody off was what allowed Lansky to have his casinos both legally and physically protected. Regarding the games and the bets placed within their facilities, there was a strict code of integrity. In Florida and pretty much everywhere, Lansky's carpet joints were never clip joints. It was never a situation where players weren't sure whether the games were fair or not. Everybody was very clear. It was extremely fair. This was not a scheme. This was not, oh, I'm not going to ever win because it's owned by the mafia. No, this was a legit place. Lansky made sure that the personnel in charge of running the games were guys of impeccable character. So not only was Lansky set on making everything fair and upfront, but he made sure that everybody that was in charge of anything to do with the games were really, really respectable people because he didn't want, oh, well, I'm going to set it up so that everything is fair and everything, but then I'm going to hire someone that's going to set it up as a scheme and it's going to look like I set it up as a scheme. That's not what I want. I want to make sure that not only are the games legit, the people that are working there are legit, and everybody can rest assured knowing that if they come into my casino, they have a fair shot at winning. It's not a scheme. It's not a skim. It's not just dumping money into the mafia's pockets. You're coming here for a good night and pretty much for the same reason you go to any other casino. Lansky, who later became a significant investor in Siegel's Flamingo Hotel, persuaded the Italian-American mafia to appoint Siegel as the general manager of Las Vegas in 1946. Lansky transferred the unlawful profits from his expanding casino empire to a Swiss bank account, where anonymity is guaranteed by the 1934 Swiss Banking Act. In order to shield himself from the kind of prosecution that led to Al Capone's imprisonment for tax fraud. Later, Lansky would invest into offshore bank accounts in Switzerland, which he used to smuggle cash out of the country using a network of holding and shell companies. All right, guys, that is going to be the end of part one of Meyer Lansky. This is going to be another video with a lot of parts to it. And that's perfectly okay because Meyer Lansky is a freaking monster and he deserves multiple parts. But more than that, this video is already super long and would be hours if I put all the information about him into this video. Thanks so much for watching. If you're still here, you're a real one. I hope you enjoyed the video. Please don't forget to like, share, comment, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye.